up, everybody? Hockey Mountain High, your go-to avalanche podcast presented by Total Beverage in Thornton and Westminster. I'm your host, J.J. Jerez. With me, Arif Dean and Leaf Blower Guy, <laughs> of course, joins us He's here. He's in the section right below us to start today. He's not on the other side of the rink, so that's him trying to interrupt me as we speak. Right. Usually, he's on the other side of the rink, and we're like, all right, he's all the, all the way in 305. We've got some time. We've Let's got start. 30 minutes. Let's get it done. But no, I, I, we can hear him. We can, I can feel the air of the leaf blower right now. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, let's get into it. A fantastic game tonight out of the Colorado Avalanche. I mean, both from an offensive standpoint, defensive standpoint, but most importantly from the goaltending, right? Pavel Francouz finishes with 24 saves on the night and the shutout. Just tonight's all about him, isn't it? It absolutely is. And, and it's really funny to kind of, you know, kind of break down how this all unfolded where Darcy gets injured. Darcy Kemper gets hurt last game. Frankie comes in cleans it up for the avalanche obviously surrendering three goals in the process and then for the next two days all we're hearing and by all we are hearing i mean all i'm hearing because i listen to every radio show known to man and every podcast known to man all day and all night because that's what i do um that this is going to be another game with a lot of goals because mike smith is shaky and the avalanche have to rely on their backup and it seems to me that people have seemingly forgot what pavel francis is am i am i jumping on the bandwagon 100 percent? no I, I, I don't have an opinion either way. I think Pavel Francouz is at the same level as pretty much any other starter the Avalanche have had for the last decade. And Varley, Gruby, Kemper, um, you know, some are a little bit better than the other, but they're not the Vasilevskis and Price of the world, but they're also not terrible goalies. They're goalies that could win you cups. So that's kind of how I feel about Frankie. But it seems many people have forgotten that that's the type of performance that he can bring in. So what we saw was people talking about the Avalanche kind of lacking and and struggling and and being you know they should be worried about the fact that darcy's going to be hurt but before that even all unfolded in game one even though frankie wasn't that good he wasn't that sharp the crowd was chanting frankie any chance they got and i don't know about you and i don't even remember if i mentioned this in the last podcast but i heard more frankie chants in game one not even today erase what we heard today i heard more frankie chants in game one than i feel like i heard chants for darcy kemper the entire season Maybe that's because Darcy doesn't sound cool. Neither does Kemper. It doesn't sound like Varley or Frankie or Groove or Grubauer. But people love this guy and they wanted to kind of get him going even during his rough game in game one. People wanted to get Frankie going here and it looks like it paid off for game two. Yeah, I think there was a lot of people getting nervous about Darcy's play, right? I mean, the second round wasn't exactly the strongest for him and I think that's when the doubt started to creep in some people's mind. There's also the contingent of Avs fans out there that were nervous about Francis starting tonight, right? I mean, judging off of his performance in game one, he let in three goals. Of course, he came in cold, wasn't expecting to play, and um, still let in three goals, which wasn't amazing. We said he was fine in that podcast, but what they forget is he hasn't played since that first round in Nashville. I mean, it's been a couple weeks since he's seen in-game action. So he gets a half a game in game one, gets his feet wet again, is back to being comfortable, gets the full start, has a full day of preparation. He knew yesterday he said that he would be starting today. Um, And you just see the difference in what it can do, right? You get those games under your belt, you get the consistency going, and, uh, I mean, it's huge for a goaltender. So I can only expect him, I mean, I don't expect him to get a shutout next game, but I expect another strong game out of him as they head to Edmonton for game three. There is just, there is no 
he's just there's no worries in his game at all time i think i texted you this he's calm he's cool he's collected no worries and all i could think of is timon and pumba saying hakuna matata <laughs> that's the way pavel francis lives his life that's the way he plays hockey it's just straight up no worries for the rest of your days and that seems to be the way that he's leading the avalanche and what he did tonight i mean I asked Jared Bednar about his calmness, and there I go again, talking about me asking a question. I asked Jared Bednar about the calmness of Pavel Francouz, and he gave perhaps the easiest answer, and one that I should have expected, which is, that's his personality. That's just the way he is in general. He's so calm all the time that his it kind of rubs off into his on-ice play, where even in his ability to, to be in the moment, to be in the game, to... Uh, you know help his team get within two victories of the stanley cup final there is no aggressiveness to the way he plays he's calm he's cool he's having fun it's typical pavel francois personality but he also understands this like the, the 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 situation and the task at hand and he shut down the edmonton oilers this high-flying high-scoring team yeah, I mean, that's a perfect mindset you want out of your goalie, right? Because it rubs off. Once the, the guys in front of him realize, wow, this guy's calm, he's relaxed, and he's making the big saves already, we're going to come and kind of play a similar style. Uh, and that's just who he is, right? You, you get to the calmness of his personality, but you also, I think a big factor into his personality is how much he loves his teammates, right? You really get that vibe when he's talking about him. It's like somebody asks... You get that vibe when they're talking about him, too. Exactly. And somebody asks Pavel a question about himself, and he, he has a hard time answering it, and he'd rather deviate the, the conversation and talk about his teammates and how well they played in front of him, and that's really what gave him the success, which, you know, unselfish, calm. I mean, he just has every trait that you want in, a, in your starting goalie right now, whether it's, you know, the starting goalie or just the one you have to go with. Yeah, of course. And, and I think that the, the, the great thing about someone like Pavel Francis, who's been around for a while, who uh, he was here when Varley and Gruby first had their, you know, stint together as the, mm -hmm. the, the starter in the backup. He was here throughout Gruby's entire time as the starter when Var Varley departed for Long Island. And now he's here for Darcy Kemper. And, you know, I don't know where he is on the list, but he's one of the longer tenured Avalanche players now. Obviously, Miko and Nate in game have been around longer. Eric Johnson's been around longer. JT Comfer has been around longer. But we've seen some guys exit the door in recent memory. Guys like uh, Tyson Jost, guys like Philip Grubauer, where now Francis is suddenly, he's part of this core in a sense where people want to rally around him because as people come and go, he's always there. He's always doing his thing. He signed another team-friendly contract. As much as the contract stuff you may feel like doesn't matter, that does matter inside a locker room. There's been stories for years about just the awkwardness when Ryan O'Reilly came back from his offer sheet and teammates knowing that he's now making $6 million or whatever it was, $5 million at the time from the, from the Calgary Flames. And he got this big signing bonus and they're in the middle of this piss poor season and Ryan O'Reilly's collecting money while they're playing a terrible year. That stuff matters. It helps for the teammates. It helps, it helps the respect that he gets from his teammates the fact that he keeps signing these kind of contracts helps in that sense as well. And he's just a happy-go-lucky guy. Very, very great teammate and just the kind of guy you want in any locker room. So players love to rally around someone like uh, like Frankie. And it's almost like, really quickly, it's almost like when Kemper gets hurt and Frankie comes into the game and Francis suddenly has to take over, his teammates want to win because they don't want Francis to be put in a situation where it's, you know, a lose-lose situation. They want to give their best efforts 
to set him up for success rather than him, you know, be the storyline. The Avalanche got blown out four straight games by Edmonton because they lost their starter and that backup guy couldn't cut it. Nobody wants that to happen to someone like Francis because of the respect he's earned from his teammates. I mean, and from the fans, right? We've seen him do this for years. I mean, I remember two contracts ago before he signed uh, that contract, two contracts ago, you and I were talking about how he's might, he might be the best hidden gem in all of the NHL. Well, now I'm excited to see how the national media and the national pundits start to uh, really discover who Pavel Francouz is and what he's actually capable of. There was about a two-week period in 2020, somewhere around the time of the, uh, following the injury to Philip Grubauer at the Air Force Academy game in late February, leading up to the mid-March COVID pause of 2020. There was about a two-week period where people started to talk about Pavel Francouz. Then COVID happened, four-month pause, we come back, the Avalanche beat Arizona on the back of Philip Grubauer, they come into Dallas, Gruby gets injured, Frankie comes in, Frankie gets injured, Hutchinson comes in, and then we don't see Frankie again in an NHL game until December of 2021. And it's that game against Nashville, and then he's a full-time backup again in January 2022. So it's almost as if people have forgotten about him, and they now need to relearn, like, oh, yeah, that backup guy in the the Avalanche organization, who's the same age as Darcy Kemper, I think he's a few months older than him, uh, yeah, this guy's pretty good. He's not just a backup that makes $2 million. The Avalanche are fortunate to have him on a deal like that, and fortunate to have him as a backup in general. And don't forget, it was his addition back into the lineup that really boosted Darcy Kemper's game, right? 100%. So, yep, yeah. It was. It all kind of... Francouz was kind of the... When you look back at this season, he was kind of... His health was the point in the year that brought everything together, from the starting goalie playing his game to the Avalanche winning a ton of games... In January when they went, what was it, 14-0-2 or 15-0-2, it all started with Pavel Francouz getting healthy, coming back into that locker room, his on-ice performance, his off-ice demeanor, all of that was was a big factor in the Avalanche season January on. Yep, you love to see the way he's playing and you love to see the crowd embrace him and really help him get his confidence, right? I mean, what better of a confidence booster than 18,000 people screaming your name? I, know, I mean, I know I'd feel pretty pretty juiced if I was getting that. And how wonderful was that moment at the end? He pulled the Marc-Andre Fleury special. Throughout the entire night, he was getting his name chanted. And in the end, very end, when the Avalanche were on that five-on-three power play in the final moments, and the puck was in the Edmonton zone for the face-off. He acknowledged it. He acknowledged it. They had his face on that jumbotron. It was a shoulder-up headshot of him. And the chance, and the crowd was chanting Frankie, and he gave that clap using his blocker and his glove. He, he gave the clap, and then he put the fist up to... To, to, to fist bump the audience and it was just a wonderful moment and when he was asked about it you know because it was a moment that you know not a lot of people get a moment like that and if you're Francis and you're entering the playoffs on you know as a backup goalie you don't expect to be in that kind of a position and he said some things are hard to describe and you can just kind of feel the emotion in his voice when he was answering that question so just Shout out Frankie. Like, there's no better. I, I know it's such a cliche hockey thing to say that there is no better guy, but there truly, genuinely is no better guy to deserve that kind of moment. Right. Humble, quiet, motivated, loves his team. I mean, just everything you want in a team. Nice guy, plays hard. Exactly. Uh, and I guess, so just to wrap up the Francois conversation, Jared Bednar wasn't willing to tell us where his thought is, whether or not, you know, if Darcy Kemper was ready to go for game three, what direction he would Did go. Did you see the smirk on his face answering that question? Sure, sure. So he had you- a smirk from ear to ear. We'll see. We'll evaluate. We'll watch the tape. We'll talk to Darcy and Frankie. And then he gets quiet and just smiles. Like, not like the miniature Bednar smirk like a full blown like ear to ear ha 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 this guy's an idiot you think i'm gonna go back to darcy after that game (laughs) like that's kind of the way that i i read that 
I, I kind of read it as Jared Bernard just loves playing this game of you got to guess. I'm not telling you anything. He's been waiting for the playoffs, and he's been waiting to get this far for years so that he can finally play the Wolsey, and I'm not sharing. It was the same thing he did with the Burakovsky injury when he was asked if Burakovsky was a healthy or an unhealthy scratch. He said, I literally just said I'm not going to share any information about injuries, and that includes Burakovsky. Let's get into the second line performance. Lekkonen, Kadri, Rantanen combined for a total of seven points tonight. Uh, they really led the way. And uh, just good to see a big game out of Miko Rantanen. I mean, he's been tiptoeing his way there. Good to see Kadri have that burst, right? He, it's kind of like he goes quiet for a couple games and then comes out huge. Not saying he did was quiet in game one because he had a goal, but just he, he comes out with those sporadic bursts here and there and it couldn't have come at a better time. And no guy feeds off the energy of, you know, making a play than Kadri does. When he, you know, we've talked for the entire season about how the Avalanche have spurts of good moments. Well, Nazem Kadri especially, when he's in on a big play and he gets energized, it doesn't even need to be at home. We've been talking for a couple of weeks now about how he embraces being the villain on the road and really feeds off of the negative energy that the crowd gives him as well, especially in St. Louis where they pretty much hate him at this point after the last two years. But, um, you know, he has that initial play. Lekkonen forechecks it, gets the puck back to, uh, I want to say, Taves, who gives it to Kadri. Kadri fires it home. Obviously, Lekkonen ended up getting a piece of it. He feeds off that energy. And not 15 seconds later, he feeds Josh Manson for a goal. And not less than two minutes after that, he feeds Miko Rantanen on the two-on-one. As soon as he got that energy and that burst from that first goal, he went in and did it two more times. Three primary assists for Nazem Kadri. Just a great performance from him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was a little bit nervous because I, I came out with that video before game, before the game saying, hey, everybody, take the over on his shots because he hit nine in game one. But, yeah, with him passing and assist after assist after assist, I'm starting to get nervous. And, like, is this guy just trying to get assists today or is he going to be shooting the puck? But he got there. He got his four shots. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think he just he led the way. He led the way. And Miko Rantanen, now back-to-back games. And he got exactly four shots, too. Exactly, so. yeah. I, I barely, by the skin of my teeth, nailed that one. He, and two of those shots came in the third period. So, again, I was sweating. But uh, Kadri played great. Rantanen, back-to-back games with a goal. Is it safe to say he's out of his slump here? As he said and as he put it, he never was in a slump. They just weren't going in. And I kind of felt that, too. <laughs> like, we were talking about Miko and... He had 10 assists. He had opportunities. He wasn't a passenger. He wasn't the kind of player where he was playing so bad where it's like, do we need to take him out of the top six? Or is he, do we need to give him a wake-up call? It was just a matter of like, dude, can you find the back of the net, please? There was a second there on the five-on-three that they had where it kind of seemed like he was just lacking urgency, right? I mean, I know it was a five-on-three, so you've got the, the time. You've got the space. Um, but he would, you know, he was standing at the blue line and not really moving his feet too much, just looking for that pass and just to keep moving the puck rather than looking for a dangerous play. So at first I was getting a little irritated with what he was doing, but I mean, by the end of the game, he was he was very present and very active. He absolutely was, and and just that line with him and Lekkinen and Kadri, um, there's nothing like it. He it it just it fits so well, and it's I don't I don't know how many times on these podcasts over the last two-and-a-half playoff rounds, you and I can talk about how the Avalanche's top six looks great. And it's pretty much a different combination every time. Sometimes it's Lekkonen on the top line with Miko and Nate. And Nate. Sometimes it's Landeskog on the top line. They keep mixing and matching it, and it seems like they've done pretty much everything but play Landeskog, Miko, and uh, Nate McKinnon on the same line at the same time as usual. Um, but this line specifically... 
Arturi Lekin and Mikko Rantanen and Nazem Kadri. Highlighting tonight's game, Mikko Rantanen obviously had that call. Hell of a play by him. He also had an assist on the first goal. Arturi Lekkinen had the goal on the first goal. Uh, scored the first goal, I should say. <laughs> the tip-in on the first goal. And then he assisted on the second one, the Josh Manson and Nazem Kadri setup. He had the secondary assist on that. And then obviously Kadri with the three primary assists. If you go back and watch the replay for each of those first two goals, I've been talking about mini Val all season. And Jared Bednar, because we had a lot of our national media friends in the audience today in the press media availability, once again reiterated how he's been saying that Lekkinen reminds him of Nichushkin. And obviously it's in relation to his forechecking. Go watch the replays on each of the first two goals. Arturi Lekkinen was a catalyst on both turnovers. His forechecking led to a turnover that got the puck back to, to Kadri, who fed it to Manson. His, uh, or, or sorry, that got it back to Taves, who fed it to Kadri. And obviously the shot that he tipped in, not Taves, but Rantanen. And then same thing on the second one. He directly led to the turnover that got the puck to Kadri to feed it to Manson. Both goals, 15 seconds apart, same guy. Just an exceptional performance by Lekin, and he brings that line together so well. I just think the forecheck as a whole is really kind of undervalued with, with what the Avalanche are doing right now because they have the luxury of sending two guys in after the puck pretty much every forecheck. So they love to play that 2-1-2 two, two, um, style because they can get away with it. What I've seen from opponents is they're so scared of the Avalanche's ability to fly through the neutral zone that they can't quite play such an aggressive neutral or a- aggressive forecheck. Right? I remember I think at one point uh, St. Louis was playing a 1-1-3. I'm seeing uh, Edmonton play a 1-2-2. So I, I just that, that ability to send two guys in and have them be effective, I think is really what's putting the Avalanche above a lot of teams right now. This is this is their the system they play. This is the Jared Bednar hockey that he's been kind of ingraining and implementing for this team since 2017. His first year, he didn't get much time to do it. We've seen it grow over the last five years. There's a very good reason why... The line of Soderberg, Nieto, and Calvert, which later, or that started as Como, later became Calvert. There's a reason why that line worked so well. Or those, at all. <laughs> yeah, or at all. Because those guys came from teams like San Jose, who went to the cup final in 2016. Like Boston, who went to the cup final previously and was always a playoff team. And for guys like Como and Calvert that jumped around and played a lot of playoff games. Those were guys that came from teams that had great systems, that knew how to forecheck, that knew how to be aggressive, that knew how to possess the puck. And they came in and they joined a team of Avalanche guys that, quite frankly, couldn't make the playoffs for a few years and were, you know, lost under Patrick Wall and before that, Joe Sacco and God knows who the hell else they've had. So those guys were able to do it because they were able to pick it up right away. It took a few years, but now all the guys have picked it up. They've brought in the right players to fit in the system that Jared wants to play. And that's why we're seeing Lekkinens and Nichushkins, guys like that, that are in your top six. That's why we're seeing JT Comfort excel. That's why Nicholas Obey Kubel, a waiver wire pickup that pretty much nobody else wanted because the Avalanche were so high up on that waiver list that so many teams passed on him to allow the Avalanche the opportunity to even get him. That's why he fits in too, because he fits the style that Jared wants. The aggressive forecheck. Soon as the other team gets the puck, get on him and get it back. Yep, absolutely. Um, let's look into the first period versus the second period, right? I mean, Edmonton came out and played a decent game in the first period. You look at the shot count, Edmonton had 13 to Colorado's 14. The period ended 0-0. Then, of course, we know in the second period, that's when the Avalanche really took over, had a 
wave of goals come and end of the second period suddenly is a 2-0 game where the Avalanche got 12 shots in that second period to Edmonton 6. So something drastically changed between that first and second period. Yeah, 3-0 game and whatever that change was, it was uh, to me... The Avalanche, yeah, you said 2 nothing. So it was a 3 nothing after the second period. I hope I got that one right because the last time I tried to correct you on this podcast, it sound, I sounded like an idiot because you said the right <laughs> thing and I'm like, no, that's wrong. And, and I let you convince me that I was yeah. wrong too, worst of all. So, so here we are. When we hear it back, we'll figure it out. But uh, um, what the hell were we even talking about? The first period versus second period. Thank you. So first period versus second period. The differences that I saw, number one, the first two or three minutes of the game, how beer league hockey exciting was that? It was right from the opening face-off. Both teams going back and forth, exchanging. Have you ever seen that Homer Simpson gif where he's just like has his hands going all up like, oh my God, what the hell's going on? Mm-hmm. If you follow Mark Lazarus on Twitter, that's what he posted the first three minutes. He said, both of these teams are going to surely come out and play a more tighter checking game. And then he goes, first three minutes of the game and it's just madness, just insanity. Nobody can even know what the hell's going on. I think the biggest thing that the Avalanche realized is we can't play these kind of track meets every single night. In the second period and in the third period combined, the Avalanche surrendered 11 shots, six and five. They kept their offense going, but they didn't let it turn into a track meet. Rather, they got the puck, they got it into the offensive zone, they cycled. They cycled, they exhausted the Edmonton Oilers players, made them ice the puck four consecutive times in a minute 16 stretch in the second period, doing things like that, tiring your opponent, beating them slowly but surely, and then being able to capitalize on opportunities when Lekkonen is, you know, forechecking and leading to turnover. So it was a much better performance by the Avalanche in the sense where they kept their offense up and going, but they took their defense and they stuck it to the Oilers and held them to just 11 shots after they had 13 in the first period. Yeah, I mean, we could point directly at Connor McDavid, right? He's supposed to be their biggest threat. Avalanche held him to just two shots on goal and a minus one. Meanwhile, Leon Dreisaitl, also a minus one. He got three shots on goal. So obviously shutting down those two guys has been huge, but shutting down Connor McDavid to that extent, I did not see that one coming. What a hell of a game. Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, Evander Kane. The only time I said any of those guys' name tonight was when Evander Kane was trying to get at Nichushkin throughout the night. Other than that... Makar. Nurse was on Nichushkin. Oh, sorry, Makar. Yeah, yeah. Other than that, absolutely nothing from those mm-hmm. three and and that's all thanks to the avalanche the exceptional play of kale mccarr and devon taves and just the team defense in general nathan mckinnon jared bedner highlighted him we asked about mccarr and taves and he went on his long rambling answers as usual and then ended it with i think we need to give more credit to nathan mckinnon and what he's doing and how much of a team player he's been and nathan played a part in that as well Agreed, agreed. And I think a big part of stopping McDavid and Dreisaitl and all those guys was the penalty kill, right? Not so, not so much success in, the, in game one on the penalty kill, um, but we know that there were some adjustments, adjustments made by Jared Bednar really focusing on how to stop the Edmonton power play because it is a potent power play. Um, so I think Jared Bednar deserves a lot of credit because what I saw from the penalty killers today was a perfect execution of what he's been working with them on, tweaking that penalty kill a little bit to better suit their defensive game against Edmonton for many other teams when you fail to capitalize on each of your three opportunities in the first period and when you fail to capitalize on a minute 32 of a five on three for a lot of other teams that will lead to a loss you're eventually expecting penalties to be called on you the refs got to kind of even it up a little bit at some point but the avalanche held their own both on the PK and on the fact that despite their inability to capitalize on the power play you know, other than the one power play goal they had later in the game when it was already 3 nothing, uh, they 
they they they they kept it together and it just like could you not see it the avalanche can't score on the five on three the oilers will later get a power play score on it and suddenly we're sitting here talking about the five on three the avs blow an opportunity they squandered an opportunity and we didn't have to do any of that because of the strength of their pk because of guys like Lekkanen and, and Nichushkin, because of the unsung heroes the last few weeks of Darren Helm and Andrew Cogliano and JT Comfort, the, the third and fourth liners, the PK guys, the nitty-gritty blue-collar hockey player mentality that these guys have on the PK to block shots. We saw Abe Kubel do it again tonight, like Berkey did the other night. So all the power to the Avalanche and all the credit to Jared Bednar and his staff for getting that PK to where it is now because we saw at times throughout the regular season they struggled. And they just played the best power play team in the playoffs in the St. Louis Blues. And then, you know, you finally finish with them and you didn't do too well on the PK against the St. Louis Blues throughout six games. You get to the next round and, oh, it's just Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl on the Edmonton Oilers. So have fun with that. But the Avalanche were able to hold their own. Additionally, I think they get credit for their discipline tonight, right? Because they didn't get into any of the garbage that Edmonton was so clearly trying to get them engaged in and not giving Edmonton those power play opportunities and not being a part of the the nonsense that again they were trying to entice Colorado into and that's led by Kale McCart right you see it over and over and over anytime anybody tries to get in his face push him around hit him he just skates away he turns around he doesn't listen to the chirping he just ignores it and that that takes a lot of strength and uh I think the rest of the team sees that and follows suit and I think I'm, I'm really super impressed by that ability to just make the smarter play and, and not get yourself uh, a penalty yeah, especially in a game when you're up 4 to nothing, you know exactly what's happening. Sure, yeah. In a game where it's 1-1 late in the third period, if someone starts to try to play that chippiness with you, especially after the whistles, you got to clap right back at them and, and you know let them know that you're not going to be pushed around in a game that someone still has to win. But when you are clearly up 3 nothing, 4 nothing, you frustrated the shit out of the opponent, and they're about to go down 2 nothing in a series, you got to hold your own, and that's what Caleb Carr was able to do. Even guys like Nazem Kadri, Gabe Landeskog, they come in, they throw the, a push here and there. Miko Rantanen talked today about how you can't let everything slide, and Nazem Kadri talked about how we're not going to back away from everything. They kept saying the word everything, not anything, but everything. So we're not going to back, back, back down Sorry, from anything. Is You hit us, we're going to hit you back. That's not what they're doing. We're not going to back down from everything. It's you hit us, we're going to walk away. But if you keep hitting us, we're going to punch you in the face and then walk away because you keep doing it over and over again. And that's the best mentality to have. Show them that you can do it. Don't let them get a physical edge on you. Don't let them bully you. But also turn a blind eye, skate away, laugh, point at the score sheet. Let the fans chant, chant Frankie and have their karaoke night as they were throughout the night and or throughout the third period and, and you know, take a 2 nothing series lead. And that's the best revenge, right? Beating them on the score sheet. How dumb does Evander Kane have to feel after getting a stupid penalty? And then they give up a goal on the ensuing power play for Colorado. So, again, we saw that a lot tonight. Kane versus Makar, Nichushkin and Nurse. Uh, there was an obvious attempt at trying to get under these guys' skin and Avalanche just weren't having it. Yeah, and it's kind of hilarious so at the end of the game it ends up with seven penalties for the Edmonton Oilers and only three for the Avalanche so the Avs were one for seven on the power play and the Oilers were only over over two oh sorry one for seven and over two uh that's because uh there was a four on four in there I think at one point so yeah I'm a little bit off eight penalties to three penalties but seven to two in the in terms of power plays got it uh, yeah, sorry, I had to kind of figure figure that out along the way. We're, we're working here. On the fly. It's 10 p.m. We're working here. 10.30. Um, 
1024. We're getting there. <laughs> I know JJ counts the minutes after 8 p.m. because that's his bedtime. He has his cookies and hot chocolate and goes to bed. Um, but Jay Woodcroft at the end of the game, the Edmonton Oilers coach, um, he wasn't too happy with the fact that it was seven power plays to two. And he kind of made an effort to, as he said, not want to criticize the ref, but also he still did at the same time. And and it's the gamesmanship we've seen before. We've seen Craig Berube do it. We saw Pete DeBoer do it against the Avalanche last year with the Vegas Golden Knights. Here's my issue with it this time around is breaking down the penalty. So let's take out the Byram and the uh, the team interference bench minor penalty that Zach Cassian got for ripping Byram's helmet off from the bench like an idiot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's take away the four-on-four, the offsetting minors. Abe Kubel and Kadri both got called for high-sticking. Very obviously good penalties. Yamamoto tripping in the first period. Dreisaitl slashing. And then Kulak, the penalty that made it a five-on-three was an elbow to McKinnon's face. Those are clear penalties. The fourth penalty that Edmonton took, which was almost 40 minutes later, 36 minutes later, was a too many men on the ice penalty. After that, so stopping right there, two penalties on the avalanche that were clear, four penalties on the Oilers. That says to me that the game was called evenly because a 4-2 to advantage in power plays in a game where after 40 minutes you were leading 14-4 to in odd man rushes and slot opportunities, that says to me that the team that had the puck more earned four power plays and the team that had the puck less earned two. So very reasonable. The last three penalties the Edmonton Oilers took was a roughing on Evander Kane. He comes out of the box. He takes another roughing and then Darnell Nurse takes a cross-checking and all three of them were t- retaliatory. Kane going after Makar, Nurse going after Nichushkin after they've been drawing at each other all night. So those three penalties, you can't include them in it and say, well, they took two and we took seven. Your team took three of their seven bonehead penalties. penalties yeah. Bonehead penalties in the last couple of minutes because they were upset, they were losing, and they were frustrated. So that's my issue with the gamesmanship this time around. I don't think this is going to be a situation like last year where Pete DeBoer called out the refs and then the Avalanche suddenly couldn't get a power play opportunity for their life. But I do think that it was a little bit strange for him to go that route tonight. Indeed, indeed. Well, that's all I've got to really talk about. Last thing I get, I guess I want to point out, we were all about Nazem Kadri's over on the shots. Nathan McKinnon had 11 tonight. 11. So let's keep an eye on uh, what that looks like for his over-under in Game 3. But on to Edmonton Arif. Uh, I'm excited. I know you're heading that way. So uh, you know we'll have some more post-game podcasts from Edmonton. That's going to be awesome. But 10 down, 6 to go. Pretty crazy. Uh, you got to take it one round at a time. I learned that from many, many years of, uh, well, not many, many, but many, many press conferences over the years, I should say, of players saying take it one game at a time when, you know, two games ago we were talking about eight down, eight to go. It's kind of like, holy crap, like when there were 16 teams remaining, you needed eight wins. Now there's only four teams remaining and you still need eight wins. Like <laughs> it seems kind of strange. But if you take it a series at a time, the best way to put it is this. If the Avalanche can win one of their next three games, they will have a 3-2 to two series lead with an opportunity to close it out and head to the Stanley Cup Final. If they win two of their next three games, they're in the Stanley Cup Final. If they win their next two games, they're in the Stanley Cup Final. And then from there, we go back to the drawing board. We start back at zero and count to four. Yeah, I mean, worst case scenario, right? If this team finishes the season out 6-6, six and six, 500, they're Stanley Cup champions. Yeah. And it just kind of depends on the order of which those games come. But Correct. the best way to put it is also the Avalanche just need to win two of the next five. That's it. 
and you're in the Stanley Cup final. Well, right on. What are you uh, expecting from Edmonton? Is there going to be similar results? Is it going to be a different game out of Edmonton? Or I think I, I mean I I don't think the Oilers are showing me any reason to believe that they're going to get back in this series. The Oilers have won their last three games at home, um, but it's the Avalanche are five and zero on the road. Uh, what we saw between games one and two were the better adjustments made by the Avalanche. But here's the thing. The Avalanche won game one, even though they had a silly performance and a 7-6 game with an empty netter that became 8-6. They won game one, and they were the ones that made the better adjustments to address the issues that they had in game one over the team that lost. So now they've taken a 2 to nothing lead. We talked about it last round, how Craig Berube, every time his team lost, had a chance to adjust and come back at Jared. Well, this is the chance for, for J not Todd Woodcroft, Jay Woodcroft and the Edmonton Oilers to do the same thing. But what I saw from Jared once again was excellent coaching for him to pick up on the mistakes in game one, clean it up for game two, and say, despite winning, we still need to change things. We still need to fix things. And the way that they won tonight was so far and beyond different than game one that all the credit goes to him and his coaching abilities. If the Edmonton Oilers can't do that, if they have no way of adjusting after a second straight victory, they've got zero chance. But what my prediction is, uh, is, is I, I would as assume a much closer game three. But if the Avalanche come away with that, it's going to be a sweep. The Oilers will have zero answers. If they come away with a better performance in Game 3 and still lose, they'll have their hands up like, what the hell do we do now? And Game 4 will we'll, we'll go quick. Yep. I mean, I predicted Avs in 5 from the start of this. I'm starting to doubt that a little bit, and it feels like we're looking at 4. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. they got to go play in Edmonton, which is not going to be an easy place to play. Absolutely not. And I'm excited to be there. Rogers Arena, uh, Rogers Place, sorry, is... Uh, is a hell of a rink. It's, uh, I remember driving by it many, many years ago when it was being built. I went to games at Rexall Place, but I'm excited to go there. It's one of the cooler and newer rinks in the, in the NHL, and it's a rowdy, crazy-ass audience there, crazy crowd there at, uh, in, in Edmonton, and I'm excited for it. Yep, absolutely. So there you have it, game 12 in the books. Avs have won 10 of them. So That's incredible. It's so crazy. Unbelievable numbers. So, yep, thanks for hanging out with us here tonight from an empty ball arena. We'll see if this is the last one we do for this series. Who knows? It just you might never be. know. Otherwise, uh, we'll be back in six nights. Yep, and uh, we'll be having podcasts from Edmonton as well. I of mean, course. last one from ball arena until the final. But yeah. Here we go, right around the corner. Again, you can smell it. So, uh, yeah, thanks for hanging out with us here on this podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed it if you made it this far. Bless your pretty little heart. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. We love you. Let's make hockey for everyone. We at you.